Here we are again. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you for joining us. I will be your host this hour, and I'd like to thank our sponsor, Veracity Networks, and my good friend, Drew Peterson. Thank you for believing in me, and thanks for all of you for tuning in week after week, and it's amazing the following that we have now, and you guys are amazing, and I love you guys so much for that, and I'm grateful today that uh, you're going to hear an amazing story by a guy named Dell Covington. Dell, thanks for joining us today. You bet, Todd. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you, and Guys, you're going to be blown away by this guy's story. Um, he's he's had quite the life, and he's been through a lot. Um, he's a recovering drug addict, and he's uh, a guy that uh, loves and is passionate about helping other people and sharing his story. Um, the, when I first met Dell, he came to Wasatch Recovery and actually shared his story with our clients. And I'm not kidding you; like they were talking about it weeks and weeks after you had shared your story. I mean, just blown away by it. And so, you know, I'm not going to get too much into it because I want our, our listeners to hear it from you. But I want to thank you for taking time uh, out of your schedule. I know you're busy, but thank you for joining us and being willing to share your story with us today. You bet. It's, it's good to be here. I'm grateful. Great. Well, why don't we start, Dell? Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, about your childhood, and, and we'll kind of start from there. Okay. Yeah. So... Grew up in West Valley here in Utah. Okay. Uh, went to Robert Frost Elementary, uh, Valley Junior High, All right. and then uh, Granger High School. And uh, so I was brought up in a family, uh, didn't have a dad. There wasn't a dad around. Grew up with five sisters and a brother. Where do uh, you fall in the pecking order? So let's see. So I'm second to the youngest. Okay. So I have a little sister. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So you're one of the youngest, obviously. And yep. How was that being one of the youngest? You know, it was uh, it was good because my little sister and I, Tracy, her and I cleaved to each other. We we helped each other. We were there for each other. There was a lot of trauma, abuse, and, and drugs and alcohol in our home. Cops and ambulances were there quite a bit. And so Tracy and I really protected each other from, sad to say, from the other siblings or the chaos within the home. Okay. Now, you mentioned that you didn't have a dad growing up, so to speak. Do you mind sharing, like, what, what happened there? Yeah, so, uh, well, I guess I can't necessarily say I didn't have a dad. I had a stepdad. He passed away when I was in fourth grade. Okay. And uh, my mom married him when I was maybe three or four. Okay. So I don't really have too much of a memory of him. Just uh, there was a lot of abuse that went on in the home from him. Okay. So I vaguely remember some of that stuff as a little child. But uh, yeah, no, no father figure really to speak of at all. Yeah, um, I would imagine that had to have been pretty tough, especially being, you know, one of the younger kids. I mean, you know, I've heard this before where the younger kids they they don't feel safe, and especially you know, like you're saying, there was ambulances and things and trauma and stuff and abuse going on in the home. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like as a young kid. Yeah, you know, Todd, it was. I was a very very depressed little boy very sad, very secluded within my own mind. Uh, I can remember it was Valentine's Day this particular year, uh, right before my stepdad passed away up at St. Mark's Hospital. And I remember one of the kids at school, uh, this was way back when as elementary kids, we would have a, we would make a Valentine's box and take it to school and and get little treats from other kids. And uh, in that box, I had a a box of hearts. It had a heart shape on the box, and then there were candy hearts inside it. Uh-huh. I remember this particular time I was so depressed and sad as a little boy that I I grabbed that box and I protected that box because it brought me somewhat of happiness and hope and security that I don't think I opened it and took even one candy out for months. Wow. Because to that little boy, that little box of hearts candy that was given to me by somebody that I thought really liked me meant so much to me that I didn't want to, I didn't want it to end. Really? Yeah. And how old were you about this time? I was probably, let's see, I was in fourth grade, probably the beginning of, of fourth okay. grade. I, wow. Yeah. Right before my father-in-law, my stepdad passed stepdad away. Stepdad passed away. Wow. Wow. That. So talk about that after he had passed away. How, how did you handle that? What, how did the family, you know, seem to deal with those things? Or, I mean, was there a sense of 
maybe relief that maybe some of this abuse and stuff wouldn't continue or I mean, I don't know. I'm just curious on what was going on at that time in your mind. Yeah, so that's a super good question. So there was a lot of abuse to to my family brought on by by my stepdad. Uh, months before he passed away, he was in a hospital bed in our home. So as that little boy, I got to see him in a hospital mm. bed with oxygen being given to him. And my older brother was a an older teenager. He would he would get drunk. And he would, uh, and I would witness this. He would get drunk, and he would take, he would use heroin, and cocaine. And then I, I, I vividly remember my older brother jumping on top of my stepdad's hospital bed, and beating the crap out of him. Really. While my stepdad was just useless and couldn't defend himself. And and looking back on it now, I know why because my older brother witnessed and knew the abuse that this man was causing the family. And so to your question, when my stepdad ended up passing away, it was really hard for anyone in the home to be remorseful, to miss him because of what was going on in the home. And so um, nothing really got better. It just, he was gone. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, there was just more drugs and alcohol and, and chaos going on. So much did change. Just the abuse from him to others in the home yeah. stopped. Were you pretty close to your mom um, at this time, or how how was your relationship with her? You know, my mom also had an addiction problem to okay. pain pills, okay. and I knew that as a little boy. I witnessed my mom uh, either purposely or accidentally overdose. Okay. Um, there were ambulances brought to our house many times on my mom's behalf to save her life, and so uh, she really, really tried to be a good mother. She She had a lot of faults. Um, she didn't know better in a lot of ways, but uh, the relationship with my mom and I was I, I, I knew that she loved me and I knew she wanted the best for me, but just didn't know really how to instill that bestness in us kids. Yeah, gotcha. Well, you know, and, and we could really get into a lot of that, but I want to jump ahead just a little bit and we'll probably come back and refer to these things. But I know you got to a certain point in your life where you got caught up in, in your own addiction. Why don't you share with our listeners just you know, walk us through that and kind of share your story around that. Because I can't, I, I, I'm excited for them to hear how you've overcome these things. And I know that you're a, you're a very spiritual person. You're a very faithful person. You're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, correct? Yes. And um, and, I, and I know you take that very serious and you, you're very passionate about that. So I want to hear that portion as well. But maybe just kind of walk us through your story. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. So let's see. So this particular time that I'm going to share, I was probably uh, moving ahead a, a few years from when my stepdad passed away. I was probably seven or eight at this time. And uh, now I'm being severely um, bullied at school, uh, needed to wear my older sister's clothes to school. Really? Yeah. And uh, just the, the abuse from school, the bullying at school, um, and entangled with the chaos that I was witnessing and going through in my own home, uh, that little boy just needed a sanctuary, needed somewhere to go. And so I remember uh, vividly this one day, I'm leaving the front door to go to school, and uh, I get about two or three houses down from my house, mm -hmm. and I decided that I wasn't going to subject myself to any more of this bullying at school. So I jumped the fence of two or three houses down for me, went into their backyard, and then made my way back to my backyard through these jumping these fences right and I ended up hiding out in my shed that whole day really? from school just in the back of our house yeah we had an old shed and so I stayed in that shed the whole day and then realized that uh, hey nobody much cares for me nobody much asks where I'm at I could just do this every day and be out of my home and be out of school from being bullied and so I did that really for, for, for a while and, uh, you know, I'm sure that this, the teachers and the principal and the counselors probably called my home to ask where I was. But because of the, there was no unity or there wasn't really anything going on in the home good, mm -hmm. uh, I knew that if somebody was to answer the phone and, and be asked where I was, the person, whether it was a sibling or my mom, would just say, yeah, I don't got time for this right now and hang up the phone. <laughs> there right. was It was just that much chaos, kind of just unorderly. And so... This particular day, I'm I'm in my backyard, probably heading to the shed or coming back from the shed, 
and I noticed this ball in the back corner of my yard. And I, I attempted to go to this ball hoping that little boy, I want to paint the picture of that little boy, seven, eight years old, as that little boy was attempting to walk to this ball and pick it up, yeah. a portion of this boy said to himself, uh, you know what, don't set us up to fail. Don't even attempt to pick the ball up. The ball's going to be flat. The ball's going to laugh at you because you tried to pick it up. Mm. The ball's going to call you a bunch of names. Just leave the ball alone and go about our business. And the other part of that little boy says, no, let's be a little bit positive. Yeah. Let's try to have some hope, some happiness. And so I reached down and I picked the ball up and magically the ball was pumped up and I don't even know how the ball got there. But I, I grabbed the ball and I held the ball and I embraced the ball. And to that little boy, that ball became my very best friend. That ball became my sanctuary. Mm. I held the ball and I loved the ball and I knew the ball loved me. And so I decided to, to play with the ball in my backyard. I bounced the ball on the cement and the very first time I bounced the ball in the cement, the ball came back to me. Of course it did. But I held the ball again and I embraced the ball. And because of the turmoil and the sadness and the depression of that little boy, I wanted to shout out to the world, to these kids at school, to my family and say, hey, look at me. I have somebody that loves me. I have something that cares for me and that isn't going to call me names. That's going to be there for me and it's going to always come back to me. Wow. And so I continued playing with that ball and I threw the ball up on the roof and magically the ball came back. Yeah. It didn't bounce off into another <laughs> neighbor's yard and then yeah. laugh at me because of it. It didn't bounce yeah. in my face. You know, and so I I I loved that ball and that ball became that little boy's sanctuary, safe place. Uh about a month and a half after this, uh my family went on if you could call it a little vacation. And so we went to another family member's house. And during that time there, an incident happened to me. And after this incident happened to me, I I remember looking at these family members. That little boy remembers looking at my family members and wishing and hoping and asking, why aren't you asking me if I'm okay? Why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you embracing me and holding me? Well, that never happened, and so yeah. we ended up driving back home a few days later. And as you can imagine, that little boy, what did he want to get as soon as he got oh, home? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. He wants the ball. He wants the ball. Yeah. And so from this point on, uh, it goes into my heart and in my mind how this happened to the little boy from this point on. So as I got home, as we got home, I ran to the backyard, and I got my... I got my best friend, I got the ball. And the very moment that I grabbed the ball, in my heart and in my mind, in that little boy's heart and mind, the mm -hmm. ball said to him and spoke to him and said, I can no longer be here for you. I'm broken, I'm flat, and there's nothing that I have to give you anymore. You are utterly on your own. And looking back as an adult and going through my recovery and partaking of the atonement, I know now why that happened. Now, of course, the ball wasn't flat and the ball didn't speak to me. But in that little boy's heart, in his mind, he desperately needed to be validated yeah. and told things are going to be okay. Well, that never happened. And so at that moment, I turned around and I looked at this home, this building, and realized that I'm going to just have to join them. I'm going to have to join the chaos because all of my avenues have have failed and so that started me on a, a drug and alcohol spree uh my mom how old were you at this time Dale? now i'm probably well i i know i'm in fifth grade at this point okay i remember my mother uh one time she called robert frost elementary and checked me out of school in the fifth grade and when i got home my mother asked me where my cigarettes were and so I grabbed my cigarettes and gave my mom and one. And you're in fifth grade. And I'm in fifth and grade. And she's asking you where your cigarettes are. Where my cigarettes are. Wow. And so I remember overdosing on heroin at 12 years old and not being able to go to a hospital. 
I knew that I needed to have my stomach pumped because of witnessing mm-hmm. my mother yeah. with charcoal all over her face many times with ambulances at the house. And so I, I, I overdosed on heroin at 12 years old and was in handcuffed and in the cop car at 12 years old. And that started this, this time of doing this. And so I, I really need to address and stress the fact that that little boy at that moment when the ball became flat and I decided to join my family in the chaos, uh, that little boy was on the ground and needed to be validated still. Yeah. And so as I'm going through my teenage years and, and overdosing at 12 years old, I always told myself, I always told that little boy, I'm going to come back and get you one day. I'm going to come back and validate you one day. Just hold on and wait for me. Mm. And so I always told myself that I wasn't going to be an alcoholic drug addict when I was a father and had my family because I right. had witnessed. Yeah, you've seen all the, the yeah. horror that came with it, right? Exactly. And so yeah. I, I of course, adolescence, teenage years, I'm drinking and, and smoking pot and drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes. And uh, so I... I met my my wife now. Her and I met as we were teenagers, and uh, we met at well, we went to Granger Junior High, Granger Junior High School, and uh, I got my wife pregnant when she was young. I was young too, mm-hmm. and so a week after we found out that we were going to have our a baby, we were married, and so I needed to keep that promise to myself of yeah, yeah, I needed to to not subject my family to what I was brought up like. Yeah. Well, that, that never really happened. I continued drinking and, and doing those things. And, uh, it wasn't until, and I'm, and I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, Todd, and I apologize. Okay. And we right. can go back if you want. But now we, we have Randy, our oldest and still drinking and, and doing those things. But my wife and I started to kind of split up a little bit. Mm-hmm. My my wife was brought up in the church, in the LDS church, and she always wanted to go back to what she knew. And and she wanted to do that, and yeah. I didn't. And so that started us on just kind of a, a little bit of a separation. And so uh, there was a lot of, you know, partying and stuff in the early years of our marriage. Uh, but at one point, uh, I decided to, to stop. And I did, and and I stopped, and and things became good. Right. And I had a good long years of sobriety, and then in 1998, I was in a severe car accident in Springville, Utah, at a construction site where I worked. And as I'm being put into the ambulance mm-hmm. and going to the hospital, you could imagine the fear that I had with having a good lengthy amount of sobriety. Uh, so I get to the hospital and yeah. I do the x-rays of my, my neck. It was pretty messed up. And so as I'm in a waiting room in Springville, Utah, the hospital, I think it was Springville, the doctor comes in and he puts my x-ray things up on the wall and he says, I have two, I have uh, good news and bad news for you. And he says, uh, the bad news is, is you have three discs in your upper neck that are completely turned and smashed. Wow. And uh, the good news is, is I know some good surgeons and we have some good pain medicine to give you. And, and I was fearful of the thing you were fearing. Yeah, Todd, exactly the thing that I was fearing. Yeah. Because at that point I really did understand what drugs and alcohol do, even pain medicine, because I watched my mom many years. Yeah. And so I took the prescription for Lortab. I took it home with me and, uh, I was so set on not getting that prescription filled. Now, this was in 1998, so from 1998 to around 2001, 2002, Mm -hmm. I had numerous cortisone shots. I was put in a stretching machine many times really, and had been to many chiropractors. And so in 2002 is when I, late 2001, early 2002 is when I um, basically got the lower tab or Percocet filled, and that started me on the worst you know relapse of addiction alcohol in my life from that point so it's almost like you were holding on like white knuckling this pain 
right till the very last minute and yeah. then and finally you just like you know i need something for this yeah yeah and, and it's almost like in your mind you had to set it up that if i go to these pills it's over yeah i knew almost, that right yeah, yeah. you kind of like there it is you've already had played it out in your head and now here you are taking them and so so not only did you start abusing those pills but you it sounds like you started drinking again yeah i i did and and the drinking was I purposely would get jobs at convenience stores and I would I would drink alcohol in the cooler of the convenience stores, the gas stations really? when I didn't have the Lord have a Percocet or, you know, whatever it was. Right. And so I purposely did that and and yeah, so alcohol got introduced again into this and at this time I had my wife, you know, of course, my high school sweetheart. We had four kids. I was working at Hill Air Force Base where I'm at now. And my marriage was going down and, and yeah, so that it was 2006 June mm-hmm. when I went into a rehab center from that very awful addiction that I caused myself and my family and, right. and all that. Wow. So what, why, what made you decide to check into to rehab or a treatment center? Did, was there an ultimatum that was presented to you or did you like, were you in your mind like, okay. I need some serious help here and I'm going to do something about it or. Yeah. So, uh, no, to answer that question, I, I didn't get to any conclusion that I wanted to stop using and (laughs) and it needed to stop. I didn't, I was the furthest from that at this point, but I think what did it was, uh, my mother passed away the last day in February, 2006, nine days later, my wife's mother passed away. And then two weeks after that, is when my my wife and my four kids found me in my wife's lap, overdosed and clinically dead for seven minutes. Really? And and my wife threw me on the on the ground and proceeded to give me CPR while talking to the ambulance on the phone. Uh I had a I had a near death experience when that happened. Yeah, I was gonna ask you that. I'm always a little nervous to ask someone that because I know it's kind of a a touchy situation and it can even be a sacred situation and I don't want to you know have you say anything you don't want to but I'd love to hear about that if you're all right with it yeah Todd that'd be great I appreciate you asking I, I really feel that uh, as I tell my story the Lord would have me share that portion of it because it's it's profound okay and so as I'm as I'm on the floor and my wife is giving me CPR and pumping on my chest and having the phone up to her ear and her shoulder as she's getting instructions from right. the from the dispatch, I could vaguely hear my kids running throughout the house. And at this time, our oldest kid was 16 and our youngest was four when when I overdosed and they okay. found me. And so I could vaguely hear the chaos and the, my kids screaming and crying and running around. And, and then all of a sudden, I found myself, my body was teetering on this fence and it was completely dark. But I was teetering on this fence, and I felt this fence. The thickness of it was probably six inches. Okay. I felt it from the back of my neck all the way down the back of my back, and then my feet were crossed, and I was up on top of this fence. And I didn't have control over my moving my head or my body. I could just move my eyes. Mm. I knew that I was in an overdosed situation from overdosing from drugs. Okay. And I could vaguely hear these cries from multitude, hundreds of millions of people on the right side of me. Really? And it's still dark. And uh, with being able to not use my move my neck, only my eyes, I, I turned my eyes over to see where the sound was coming from the right. Yeah. And as I did this, uh, off in the distance, and when I say distance, it seemed like it was millions of miles away. But I could see these concords of angels walking, floating, coming in my direction. And as they were doing this, every one of them, their arms were out. And they were saying, no, no, it's not your time. It's not your time. Stay where you're at. It's not your time. You've got a mission to accomplish. You've got people to talk to and, and things to do. Can I ask you, when you said it was dark, but when you turned to look and you saw those angels that you're speaking of, was it now light or was it still dark? It was still dark, but okay. they were the light. They were, they were the light. Gotcha. Yeah, they were light. Okay. They're, they're, 
And, and you know, it's, and I don't want to be cliche, but they were wearing the typical white gowns that we hear yeah. the angels wearing. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, they, they had white flowy gowns, no wings, but white flowy gowns, right. millions of them. And as they got closer to me, I, I felt the love, individual love from each one of these individuals, these angels. And they were beckoning me and they were pleading with me to stay with their arms out. Stay. It's not your time. Stay. Wow. And they're getting closer. And I start to feel myself, myself falling off the fence. And I know that this means death. This means that I'm dying from this overdose. And as I felt this, the, the physical feeling of the tension and the pressure of this fence leaving portions of my body and moving because I'm now falling off and different, right. uh, I noticed these angels started to look up behind them. So now they take all of their attention and they're looking up behind them now, up into the sky behind them. And they now are saying and speaking to this entity. And they're saying, they're saying, please don't take him. Let, let him stay. He's got a mission to accomplish. Wow. Please don't take him. And as they get closer and this entity gets closer, and, and when I say entity, I didn't quite know what it was, but of course, you know, I did. Right. So all of them and, and this entity gets closer. And now I recognize it as God. And now all of these millions of angels are pleading with God on my behalf. And they're saying, and they're pleading and saying, please don't take him. It's not his time. He's going to get through this. He's going to help hundreds of thousands of people. Please let him stay. And now I know this is God. And now he comes over to me. And now he pleads with me. Will you stop treating my children like this? Will you stop doing these things to yourself? You're my son. I'm going to give you an opportunity to take these bad choices and turn them around for better. You're going to go back. But you need to know and understand that this is not a dream. This is a revelation. And the next thing I know, I hear this, yeah. and I felt this, what sounded like a huge wash of water and wind, hit me all at once. And I instantly wake up to this paramedic mm -hmm. uh, with this syringe uh, giving me Narcan, giving me a shot. Really, And I instantly woke up and I opened up my eyes and I see this paramedic leaning over me, putting this in my, in my body Yeah, and the power of addiction. And I want to share this and, and really emphasize this. Yeah. The power of Dale's addiction was such that I wanted to scream out to this man that I knew was saving my life. I knew I had just overdosed. I could hear my family running and screaming around the house. And all I wanted to do was shout at this man and say, leave me alone. I don't need you. I don't want you. Right. Get out of my house. My drugs are just 10 feet away from me under this couch that I had a stash of pills. Right. Get out of my face. I don't need you and I don't want you here. Leave me alone. Knowing that he just saved my life and all of what just happened. Yeah. And wow. so uh, I ended up going to the hospital for two and a half days, three days. Why do you think you said that or felt that way about this guy? Uh, the power of addiction, just, the, just the, the the arrogance, the pridefulness, the... Just knowing that I know where they're at and I'm going to get back to them. Yeah, exactly. Even after that experience. Even after that experience. Okay, so, okay, I got you. Wow. Wow. So, but they end up still taking you, obviously, and you go to the hospital for a few days. So, yeah, pick yeah. up from there. Went to the hospital for a few days. Uh and they did numerous tests. You know, they they told me at the hospital, they said, you you were, we, we speculate you were dead for about seven minutes. And so they, um, being in the hospital for, for two and a half, three days, my family comes to get me. And we drive home. We're driving home. And my family stops at uh, KFC. I believe it was KFC to buy a, a meal. Right. And I had the nerve. To, to tell my family when we got home, uh, why don't you go up and, and set the table and, and I just want to be down in the family room where I almost died. And uh, 
just let me stay down here for a little bit and so they did well down in my family room you can you can see up into the kitchen and see the the feet and the legs of the people up in the kitchen from way down in the family room okay. just the way that the hallway way is it's yeah angled and stuff yeah and so as they were up there uh, and I had the nerve to do this and again I share this because it's the power of addiction I proceeded to get the couch get on put my hand under the couch and get the very same pills that just about ended my life and I took some of them chewed them up swallowed them waited a few minutes and then went up into the kitchen and told my family I'm sorry for what I've done I won't do this again things will be okay things will get better let's just move on knowing I mean isn't that ironic that's just yeah, yeah. and so well, I, I have a question though, Dale, if you don't mind. So were you still though contemplating the experience you had though when you had died? You know, I mean, was that ever like, were you wrestling with that in your mind? Like, was that real? Was it not real? You know, was that message authentic? Was it not? I mean, I'm just curious, like, did that, was that crossing your mind at all as well? You know, it, it, it did vaguely every once in a while, but I think the issue was or the problem was is, I, I've, I've always been told and I've always knew that when God says in the scriptures, I will not be mocked, the Father will not be mocked. I had been mocking him by carrying a valid temple recommend for these years, going to the temple, professing to my wife and my kids and, and anybody mm -hmm. else that would listen to me. And I truly feel that when I had that revelation, that near-death experience, when God told me what he told me and then yeah. I came back and I continued doing what I was doing, that's God's way of saying, you've made your choice. I will not be mocked. You've mocked me during your addiction and there has to be a point when my leniency is, yeah. is done because you've made yeah. your choice. Yeah. And so it crossed wow. my mind, but I think I had become so far from the being able to be, yeah. you know, it was just it was just a vague thing that I, I didn't really take to heart until yeah eventually you know my mother passing away and then my wife's mom passing away nine days later and then me overdosing and almost dying and then yeah. two weeks after that my wife finding more pills in my pocket it was at that point that she gave me the ultimatum and said you know either go into a rehab center or go pack your bags and live with whoever addict you feel that you want to and so at that right. point is when I went to a rehab center, June 9th, 2006. Mm, okay. So that's when you went into rehab at that yeah. point. Gotcha. Wow, that's that's amazing. So you go up to the dinner table and you, you apologize to the family, right? Were you apologizing for the previous experience or apologizing that you just took more pills? Uh, definitely not that. Okay. It, the, I was apologizing just, for... Okay. Yep, and that's a good point to Yeah, to I was just making, up. clarifying that. Yep. I was apologizing for um, them knowing that I had just overdosed by my own accord. And, yeah. and that's what I was apologizing for, just trying to pacify my family as yeah. addicts do sometimes. Yeah. And how many kids do you have at this point? Four. Four kids. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is an unbelievable uh, part of your story. Um, and I know there's more, but so... You know, I know you're coming up. I think it was like this past June sixth. Uh, you were, f you've been fifteen. It's been fifteen years since you've been in the treatment center, correct? Um, this coming June 9th will be fifteen. Oh, okay. I'm way off. <laughs> I didn't read that correctly. That's my fault. No, that's fine. Um, but yeah, so fifteen years. Wow, that's amazing. So, can I? I would like to know what happened, like when you finally, okay, I've got to really change my life and start doing what as you would probably say, what God would want you to do. Yeah. Okay. So I, so I go into the rehab center June 9th. Yeah. Uh, they, and I, I had attempted to still try to pacify my wife and tell her, I don't got a problem. Right. I'll go with you to the rehab center. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Knowing that, uh, that I could fool her and fool the people at the rehab center. And I'd spend maybe an hour and a half there and then I'd be let go with my wife and continue doing what I was doing. Yeah. And so we went to the rehab center and they they talked to me. They did their assessment and uh, their, my cover was blown, you know. Yeah. The addict in me at the time <laughs> said, hey, dummy, shut your mouth and quit talking. 
you're giving, you're, you're talking too much, just shut your mouth and wave up the white flag and do whatever they want you to because our cover's blown. And so I found myself in the rehab center going through detox. And at this point is when some pretty cool, awesome, beautiful, magical stuff happened for Dale. Mm-hmm. So I'm in this uh, room, little room, being detoxed for three days. And uh, it was the beginning of the first day. And of course, I, as you can imagine, we as addicts living in our addiction, we hate seeing ourselves in the mirror. Right. Because I truly think and feel that although some of us as adults make negative choices, we really, really are good people and we really do want to make better good choices. And so I didn't like looking at the man in the mirror, the husband in the mirror. Uh, and so I stayed away from it my first day in detox, first morning in detox, whatever it was. And so by the middle of the first day, I, I really, again, didn't like looking at myself in the mirror. Yeah. And so by the end of the first day, I, I vaguely could stand looking at myself in the mirror. Yeah. And then uh, by the beginning of the second day, I somewhat liked looking at myself in the mirror. And as you can imagine, detox is when your body is cleansed from all of the <laughs> drugs. And so... Right. You you eventually are going to get to a point where it's just a it's just you it's just the man it's just the husband it's just the father, or the wife or the mother and so yeah that's kind of what was going on with me and so by the middle of the second day I I, I really liked looking in the mirror I would look at my face and recognize my face and and uh, it was getting better and so that by the the beginning of the third day, I I loved looking in the mirror, and. Uh, I started to like myself. I started to really recognize the father, the husband that I genuinely wanted to be and was once that. So by the end of the third day, uh, I spent most of that day looking in the mirror at myself. Right. Remembering me. Yeah. And so end of the third day, the lady comes to get me out of this detox room and she gives me an opportunity to leave and to join the other clients at the rehab center and she told me to grab my belongings and we were to leave. I was to leave the room. And I had such a great experience in there with the man in the mirror. And so I asked this lady, her name was Kathy, as I had this little bag to leave, I, I was stopped. I stopped myself at the threshold of the door and I said to Kathy, I asked her, I said, can I go back in this room for a few minutes? And she kind of looked at me funny and said, what the, What's wrong with you? Are you on drugs? Nobody yeah. likes to go in these rooms, right. you weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> and so nonetheless, she said, yeah, you can go back in the room. And so I went into the room, and I looked into the mirror, and magically, in my heart and in my mind, the mirror went from being flat on the wall to now it's a little bit bent down. Mm-hmm. And if you could imagine if you're looking into a mirror that's flat on the wall and it starts to, to, to bend down a little bit, mm-hmm. you see the floor behind you. Yeah. And so as this happened to me, you could imagine who I saw on the floor in a fetal position looking up at me crying. Well, I saw that little boy. I saw me at seven or eight years old. And as that little boy looked up at me, now a 35-year-old man, a husband, a father, a member of society, that little boy said, if you turn around and reach down and pick me up, I will walk this walk of recovery with you. And together we will do this. And so I did. In my heart, I reached down and and picked this little frail, broken boy up and put him in my arms. And I embraced him and I held him and I loved him. And this little boy said to me, I've been looking in your direction all this time, hoping and praying that one day on your road of destruction, you would turn around and search for me and seek me out. Mm. And I, and I did that very thing. And, and I left that rehab center knowing that I had went back and rescued the child left behind. Wow. And so during that process started me, to partake of the atonement and and I did that in the rehab center and I and I learned that I had probably one of the greatest opportunities of Dell's life to subject myself to the refiner's fire right uh the atonement and through the atonement Christ let me know that he loves me and that he cares for me and that he has a mission for me if I so choose to take it 
And he said, it's going to be hard. You're going to remember some things. And yeah. if, if you could imagine the refiner's fire, we, we subject ourselves to it. And Christ being the, the refiner, he, he sometimes hammers on us and, and has us go through some things. But if we persevere through it with the help, of course, of the atonement, we can become better than we ever was before. Yeah. And so at the end of this, I really felt like Christ was saying to me, saying to Dale, to this father, to this husband, he was saying, there now, yeah, you're all put back together. But do you mind if I add some pieces to you? Do you mind if I give you some clarity, yeah. some ability to be compassion, compassionate towards others more than you are? Love others more, understand people's more, people more. And of course, I said no. I don't. I don't mind at all, Christ. Right. And sure. So it was. It was a definite walk of love and compassion and understanding with myself through Christ's atonement and with Heavenly Father. And of course, you know, we have the Holy Ghost to to help lead us as well. It was a beautiful thing. Wow, what an experience, huh? Yeah. So. Again, I'm going back to that near-death experience that you had. Did, did, did that start coming more alive to you? Because, you know, what a powerful message that was. It's like, hey, quit hurting my children and quit hurting you. And, you know, I mean, that was a very specific message. Yeah, very profound. You know, very profound and very, you know, piercing the heart kind of thing. Did that did that message start to come alive to you again, or just curious on how that all tied in together, or or if it did? Yeah, no, that's good, Todd. Thank you. So yeah, yeah. It, it most definitely did. And as I as I started to make better choices and understand that, mm -hmm. you know, I had made these negative choices for myself and my family and others, and started to understand and really know that Christ is there and the atonement is there, I started to remember more vividly the the revelation and the words specific words right from all of these angels pleading with me to stay and and the one thing that that I've never understood is in that revelation the angels were looking at me and saying and pleading with me and then they turned and pleaded with the the father yeah and so now I know that what they were doing and what that message was given to me was that it was my agency. Yeah. We all have the ability and the power to exercise our agency in such a way that we literally can take ourselves out of this world and we can literally hurt the ones that we love the most and we can literally hurt Heavenly yeah. Father's children in such a profound way. And so to answer your question, it it most definitely did. Wow. That is amazing. What a, what a powerful story. So it's been, you know, it'll be 15 years coming up uh, in June, right? Yeah. So so what what is your mission right now? What do you do? I mean, obviously, I know you love helping people. You're passionate about what you do in that area. I mean, is that, do you feel like that that's your mission? Because wasn't it told to you like, hey, you're going to help so many people kind of thing? And yeah, I mean, so kind of talk about what's going on there. So yeah, that's so good. I, I love the I love these types of questions, Todd. Thank you. You're welcome. So yeah, immediately coming out of the rehab center, I I got involved with the ARP program that the church has. Okay. Addiction recovery program. I became a facilitator for that. Oh, right on. And then uh, my wife and I became missionaries for that. And then in uh, up where I work at Hill Air Force Base, I started uh, um, uh, speaking at the directors' calls and the colonels addresses at the base theater All i right. did that uh, i think cool. 11 times at the base theater uh, each time was to around 400 people and then um, speaking out in the community numerous numerous times speaking at my church numerous times and then during all of this so i went into the rehab center 2006 was doing a lot of speaking and, and interventions family interventions right and doing the the uh, arp program a bunch of stuff at the base I always had this intuition or this feeling that uh, there was there was great things coming that I could not even fathom with where the Lord would have me go. Right. 
And so in 2012, I was called to be first counselor in the elders quorum presidency in my ward. Okay. And when that call was given to me, extended <laughs> to me, I really thought uh, and, and said kind of out loud in my heart to God, uh, uh, I'm not sure what you're doing here, but do you, did you forget I'm a recovering drug addict, alcoholic? And <laughs> you're putting me in the elders quorum presidency as a first counselor. I don't know if my ward's going <laughs> to yeah. go for this. Um, did you also forget that a few of my ward members saw me being handcuffed on the side of the road and taken to jail for a DUI? And did you also forget a lot of these ward <laughs> <Right>. members <laughs> saw me overdose at my house and, and saw the ambulances and yeah. all this? And so nonetheless, I served in that calling for a few years, and it was very successful. And, and you know, in in early 2016, I felt that there was a another calling coming, and I knew what specifically what the calling was going to be. And I pleaded with the Lord and said, no, I, I'm not the guy for this. And did you forget all these other things that I tried to remind right. you of in 2012? <laughs> now it's 2016. But <laughs> so uh, the stake presidency called and asked my wife and I to go meet with them. And they, they called me to be second counselor in our new bishopric in our ward. And uh, I I told the stake presidency, I said, I, I know you guys have been in a long while. Do you you know which Dale you got, right? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we do. And, yeah. and you're going to do great. And so when my wife and I got home that night, I told my wife I needed to go for a walk. Because that following Sunday, they were going to call me to that calling in church. And so I... So I went for a walk, like a two-hour walk, mm-hmm. and I pleaded, and I asked why, and I reminded, do you know Christ and Heavenly Father that I'm a drug addict, alcoholic? There's no way that they're going to accept me in this calling. And during that walk, I really, really felt Christ walk up beside me, put his hand on my shoulder and say, please don't forget the walk that we've all walked together. Mm. Wow. You're going to do great. And uh, it, it ended up being a beautiful thing. And so I served in that calling for three and a half years and was, re- was recently released from that to be the ward missionary leader. Oh, wow. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I hope I didn't go off on a tangent, Todd. No, no, no. No, it's beautiful. No, I asked the question. I wanted to know. Well, your story is amazing, Dell, and you know, you just have such a quiet, safe countenance and spirit about yourself. And I, I really I mean just sitting here with you, it just feels so peaceful. You got such a calming voice. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but No, thank you. But you really do. You just have uh and I would imagine that's why you're doing so good at what you're doing and helping other people especially those who have an an addiction issue as well, but they probably feel really safe around you. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I think so. I think so too. And not not just because they know you know what they're going through, but just, again, you come across as this really safe individual. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you this question. This is, uh, I'm just curious. You know, I'm sure there, there could be someone listening to your story right now who's struggling who's in a dark spot in their life, you know, and, you know, they may not even be religious or whatever. They're just having a rough time. What's some advice that maybe you could give them right now that would help them in this moment? So that's a super good question. I, I was once that person that you just explained. Yeah. And so I, I know that every single person or majority of everybody has somewhat of a higher power. Mine happens to be God, Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, whatever it may be. But I know because I was once that and I've witnessed, I've witnessed a beautiful effect of somebody, anybody, just choosing to make better choices simply because of themselves and their mm-hmm. families and their dreams and their goals. We all have the opportunity to instill happiness and joy and hope into ourselves and those that we love. And so mm. if if your higher power happens to be God or the mountains or God or a lake or God or Buddha or God or whatever it is, yeah. 
Uh, we all are entitled for happiness and joy and comfort and hope. Uh, that higher power, Dale's higher power or anybody else's higher power, is not going to seclude itself to one person or one belief. We, we all have that opportunity to instill happiness and joy to ourselves and our families in the world. Yeah, very well said. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, that I, I agree with you. And I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, I work with a lot of clients, as you well know, who, you know, they struggle with a higher power or God or whoever. And, you know, and I think the way you just described that, it makes it seem a little, lot more, uh, you know, open for all of us, you know, even if you, if you are struggling with whether you believe in a higher power or not, you know, and, but I do believe that too, that we're, we're meant to experience happiness and joy in this life. And yet we're going to go through hard times and trials, but it's amazing how much pain we put on inflict on ourselves because of our choices. Right. Right. That's so true. <laughs> you know? And so anyway, um, if, uh, if someone is who, who's listening to this right now wants to reach out to you and ask you a, a specific question or get to know more about what you are doing and, and what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, great, Todd. I appreciate you asking. Yeah. So uh, my email address, they most definitely can reach out through that. And okay. that's the email address is addictionrecoveryspeaker at gmail.com. Okay. All no spaces, just addiction recovery speaker at gmail.com. Great. That would be a great way to do it. Great way to do it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I do encourage our listeners to actually do that, reach out to you. And, you know, your story is incredible. I mean, you know, I've always been so fascinated, honestly, about near death experiences. Like, I really, I read a lot about them, I study them. I, you know, I mean, I, this might sound weird, but like, I always wanted one. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I know those are sacred things and, you know, some people don't like to talk about those things because they are so, you know, sacred personally yeah. to them. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that part of your story. I think our listeners will really appreciate that. And you so bet. thank you for doing that. I, I know that's maybe not always the easiest thing to say, but yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Todd. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to thank you, Dell. That was that was an amazing thing, and I know uh, I've been I've been touched. I felt amazing listening to your story. You know, you make me want to be a better person, and I know our listeners will feel the same way. So, awesome. Thanks, Dell, for coming in and, and sharing your story with us. You bet. Thank you, Todd, and thank all those that are listening. Hope we're doing all okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, there you go. We have Dell Covington coming here to share his amazing story. Thank you for tuning in once again. Um, I love you guys. Thank you for believing in me. And please reach out to Dell and ask him a question and and talk if you want more details around his story because I know there's a lot more that we could get into. But uh, yeah, please reach out to him. And he's obviously there to help too. If you're struggling, he'll uh, guide you in the right direction and help you. And that's just what he does. That's what he does every single day. So I love you guys. And until next time. Thanks, Dell. You bet. See ya.